Hello and welcome to the Irwin Mitchell podcast. We're here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. I'm Jenny Arrowsmith, a partner in the employment team here at Irwin Mitchell, and I'll be your host today as we discuss why it's so important for businesses to make their workplaces diverse and inclusive. I'm delighted to be joined by two people who are both passionate about these issues, as am I. Bolly Fashun. Having previously worked as a recruitment consultant across various backgrounds, Bolly recently transitioned into a diversity and inclusion role. During her years as a recruiter, she's encountered clients struggling to embed diversity and inclusion in company values and candidates from minority backgrounds who were forced to seek new opportunities due to the challenges they faced in the workplace. So she's seen the discrimination in the recruitment processes, being overlooked for promotion and pay rises and lack of training and support. And these are some of the things that we'll discuss today. In her current role as diversity and equity and inclusion lead, Bolu is helping to ensure underrepresented groups are represented fairly in the recruitment process, as well as helping organisations recognise the importance of diversity and inclusion in the workforce. And I'm also joined today by Lisa Tomlinson, founder and CEO of Limelight People Group Limited, which helps HR and senior leaders to create happier and more inclusive workplaces. Lisa has a wealthy background in recruitment and spent time in many senior HR roles. Whilst in her last role, she made great strides in diversity and inclusion work for her organisation and now, having formed her own company, is helping others to do the same, as well as invest in their staff's development and learning. So welcome, everyone. So across all sectors, people are leaving their jobs for all kinds of reasons. There are certainly more vacancies than job seekers, and this disconnect is starting to impact on growth. It's holding down capacity and slowing productivity. And this is something that's a trend called the Great Resignation. It's been predicted that up to 40% of employees are likely to move jobs this year if they don't feel valued, engaged and properly rewarded. And we prefer to see it as the Great Refresh. It's an opportunity for employers to reconsider how they need to engage, refresh, reward and retain their staff to stay ahead of the uh, competitive labour market. And the diversity inclusion issues that we're going to discuss filter through all of these areas. And just as an aside, if you're interested to know more about the wider issues, we are running a programme of webinars on that on Wednesday, 16th of March. So if you're interested, please do drop us a line and I'll, I'll get the details to you. But it was in that context that we thought it really lends a space to have a focused conversation about diversity, equity and inclusion. As I understand it, and Bolu and Lisa may, may um, correct me, there's certainly an increased representation of um, people who are charged with looking at this area within organisations. I understand it's something like 70% increase in those kind of roles in the last five years. So it'll be interesting to explore what makes those successful or how they can be most successful. But what's clear is that companies are definitely attracting the widest pool, looking to attract at least the widest pool and invest strategies for better inclusion. So we'll go on now to talk to our wonderful speakers about their insights um, and let's explore what businesses are actually doing to try and do this, attract the widest pool and invest strategies to increase better inclusion. So let's get started. I think we should start really by explaining what we mean by diversity and inclusion. So Lisa, if I come to you first, your business is designed specifically to support organisations be more inclusive. And you talk about them being happier and better places to work, which I, I love that concept. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how do you think diversity inclusion helps do this? Yeah, sure. And um, thank you for having me on today, Jenny. I mean, I, I, my last organisation um, was incredibly diverse. We did uh, a long programme where we looked at all different areas of diversity. 
because again I think one of the mistakes is made is that diversity is one thing you know and it's and it's not there's nine protected characteristics there's a few other characteristics that aren't on that list but maybe could be like class um, neurodiversity you know and then anyone that's ever done a psychometric will know that there's different styles of thinking in everybody anyway and I think when you're able to work in an environment that's inclusive whatever the people are bringing to that they're able to thrive and they're able to bring unique talents and and make the organization far richer so you get really good decision making you know there's so much irrefutable evidence right back from the 1940s about poor decision making in groups of like people um you know so you get great decisions you get creativity um you know it's just a richer more colorful more vibrant um, a nicer place to work. I think one of the things that's shifted for me over the last few years is there's a lot of research that's come out from the McKinsey's, the Forbes, the Harvard Business Reviews, um, you know, that really backs up engagement, productivity, higher financial return from organisations that have higher diversity. And it's the first time that's really, that correlation has been proved with a lot of research, um, to my knowledge anyway. So there's that side of it. And then there's the other side of it, which is, you know, I want to work in an inclusive environment. People want to work in an environment where everybody can thrive. It's that psychological safety, bringing your whole self to work, you know, and that's what people are looking for now, particularly these multi-generational workforces, you know, where younger people come in expect those values to be um, not just um, a strap line on the wall, but actually lived and experienced. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. That's... Um really insightful and I, I suppose that that evidence is supporting why companies are now starting to invest in it more as well as see the real impact that it has on well-being and engagement as you say it really makes a business case for why not to do it doesn't it and shows just how business critical it is that we are focusing on these issues and making great strides to really embed them and make them effective um, Bolo, if I, if I just turn to you then and perhaps from a recruitment perspective you can just give a bit of focus on is this We've talked a little bit just now about uh, the value of having these strategies and, 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 and inclusivity really live in an organisation once you're in there. But how, how relevant is it from a recruitment perspective? Is it something candidates are focusing on in their choice of employers? Absolutely. Um, we have definitely found that in the last couple of years, we've had more and more candidates asking about the DNI policies and initiatives that clients have. And the funny thing is, I mean, initially people think, oh, you know, we people from underrepresented groups that ask us questions. But more recently, I've had white men ask me about it. Um, and when I ask them, why is that? You know, you have people say things like I've, I've worked and I come from a different space where actually I realise that having diverse teams means that we're more successful. It means that we're more innovative. It means that people are able to bring their true self to work. And it just it just lends itself to a be better working culture. So actually, it's not only now important for individuals who are from in underrepresented groups, but also individuals who, you know, are what we call as a traditional white man. So actually, it lends itself across um, all groups. Um, also, we're finding that it's it's not just the culture is so important, but there are things that people look at from the initial stages of the recruitment process that is really important as well. So they're looking at things like the way adverts are worded. Um, you know, is the language that's used in it is it more masculine heavy? Is it more feminine heavy? Um, they're looking at things like the sort of perks and benefits that you put in the job advert. So you emphasize on flexible working. So for people that are parents, for example, or carers, that's really important. And um, they're looking at where you advertise as well. You know, are you using the traditional job boards? Are you looking at other places? Um, they're looking at through the interview process, who are the individuals that they meet? Is everybody that they meet 
all very similar? Or the, are they the same type of people? Or are they meeting diverse people through the interview process? Because that, again, the individuals that they meet through the interview process is basically their first insight into what the company is going to be like. So if everybody that I meet all look the same, all sound the same, what does that mean for me, who is a mother, an ethnic minority for, from a lower socioeconomic background, meeting everybody that looks the same? You know, there's so many things that people look at through the recruitment process in terms of how diverse an organisation is. And it's so important because with the job market just being so buoyant at the moment, we're finding that when 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 candidates are stuck between two clients, what they're looking at is, OK, right. So how diverse are they? How inclusive are they? If I am to all of a sudden my wife gets pregnant and I need to take paternity leave. How flexible would they be if all of a sudden I, I, you know, I go for a diagnosis and I realize I have a mental health issue? How flexible would they be in terms of giving support? So actually, yes, it, it's become such an important thing for candidate now. That's great. Lisa, do you have anything to add to that in terms of your perceptions? It seems that it's very much correlates between the, the, the two of you in terms of the attraction, the importance to candidates, because it reflects that wider piece of their journey in that employer, I suppose, doesn't it? And, and the experience that they'll have. Anything to, to add to that, Lisa? No, I mean, I, mean I, completely, I completely agree with Bolu and I, I think people have seen that this can be done better and I think over the last couple of years people have really started to up their game in this area, um, you know, whereas before those people who are asking those questions in interview might have had them in their head but might not have been brave enough to ask them. I think there's almost been a bit of a kind of permission giving culture shift in society where now it is okay to ask those questions. You know, and, and for everybody, I mean, most of the people I know that enjoyed flexible working in my last organisation when we bought it in five years ago um, were actually the white males that were that were in the leadership team because they could spend time with their children while they were young. You know, and that's that's a big culture shift, I think, over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, that That's great to hear from from my perspective that that it's not just paying lip service to it. So that was just wanting something I thought I'd just throw out there in terms of do you still see that companies are responding to that? that that interest by putting it in the adverts and saying the right things perhaps at the uh, recruitment stage but but then not living true to it and what's that what's the damage that that can do Bolu I'll turn to you on that one um it's a it's a massive thing at the moment we're finding that our clients we, we find some clients who who know the importance of seeing what candidates want to hear um but actually when they join the the experience is very different and what back to your question what we're finding with that is it really is it can really damage someone's brand perception um when you do that it's okay if you are in a journey and you're trying to get to somewhere you're not there yet and I always encourage our clients to be transparent about that you know I remember when I joined my current company they were very transparent about the journey that they've taken in terms of like women at page you know um disability at page and they were on a journey when it comes to ethnic minorities and they were honest with me about it they're like look you know we're not where we need to be yet but these are the things that we're putting in place and this is what we want to try and achieve and we're hoping you can come on board to support that so what I say to our clients is it's it can be really difficult when you're not completely honest about um what it is that you actually provide or you um sort of embellish them a little because if people join and they don't see these things then straight away you have unhappy employees straight away there's a higher possibility of people actually handing their resignation so it does the opposite of what you wanted to do you know people are not satisfied because they were told one thing and then get the other however if at the interview process you somebody look dni is something that we're taking really seriously um we're really passionate about and we want to do better as an employer these are the things that we've done so far. We're not where we need to be yet, um, but we're looking to implement the, these things over the next couple of weeks, or over the next couple of months, however long it's going to take. And we're hoping that with that, we're able to then build a more inclusive culture 
is there anything you'd recommend that we add into the process? I think actually just saying that to candidates and just being really honest about that can make the difference. So yes, it, we definitely are finding that with, with clients that are not being completely transparent or being honest about what actually what they can actually offer, it is doing a lot to damage their brand perception. And I would just advise instead that clients just you know, talk to candidates about what they're looking to do and the things that they've done so far and, you know, what, how, you know, um, the, the, the new recruits can support through that process. And ju- just on that then, in terms of making that work, so um, putting structures in place so that that doesn't happen and that you can, whatever stage of the journey you're at, you are showing that commitment. What What's a good example of that? What does good look like? I, I don't know which one of you wants to jump in on that. Yeah, I think one of the most important thing is buy-in. Um, you can have all the intentions to do so well, but if your senior leadership team isn't on board, there'll be problems. But also if the employee base that you're trying to work with don't, don't engage with the change that you're trying to make, you'd have the same issue. So I think the most important thing is getting by. And I think a very easy way to get, well, it's, I say it's easy, it's not easy. It's probably the most difficult thing. But the first thing in terms of actually getting by is how you communicate the company's aspirations. One thing I've realized is in, in my time of, of working here is what everybody responds to is very different. And I think um, tuning into what people respond to is really important. So if you think about the senior leadership team, sometimes, you know, they're most concerned about the bottom line. So actually explaining to them how DNI helps the bottom line, you know, having a more diverse team means that you have more innovative ideas, means you're able to create more innovative products or services for your clients, which means you're going to make more money. Um, some people maybe are more concerned about the legal case and you say things like, actually, if we don't do much about DNI and we don't understand what it what it means for our business, people can sue the company. They feel like we're not supporting them properly or our managers that are working with them are not properly trained on how to deal with certain situations. So actually, legally, it can cost us a lot of money. If they're more concerned about the moral case, you can tune them be like, actually, you know, it's the, it's the right thing to do to ensure that when individuals join our company, they feel safe. You know, Lisa was speaking earlier about psycho- psychological safety. And it's so important for that to happen, because if not, it affects the quality of work that people deliver. It affects, you know, again, like, like we spoke about before, the staff retention. So I think when it comes to senior leadership team, it's important to understand the, the managers that you work with, what is important to them and explain to them based on what they see is important, why DNI is important. But also when it comes to the, the to, to the um, employee base as well, just explain to them what your goals are, where you guys currently are and what you're trying to achieve. And I think taking feedback is such an important step. I Sometimes companies just start this DNI journey and they want to do things, but they don't really speak to the people that are currently within the company to find out what do we do so far that you really like what don't we do well what can we do differently what are your suggestions on what we can do differently and I think that's such an important step because that would help you understand it sort of gives you like 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 a ground to to grow off a foundation like okay people like that we do this really well so let's continue to build on that um and people have complained about let's say for example how their managers deal with them when it comes to Eid or Ramadan um, so, OK, we know that the next thing for us to do is maybe give our hiring managers some training sessions or facilitate some conversations between our Muslim colleagues and the rest of the business. So I think actually that could be a very good place to start. I think another mistake that some clients make is um, they just get somebody from the team, from the business who has lived experience to look after DNI, and they don't pay professionals or they don't put any support behind those people. It's such a big job and it's not a job that one person can take on. Not only that, this individual is expected to do the DNI work and their day-to-day job. So it puts extra pressure on them. And sometimes they're just not able to focus or give it as much time as attention as they want. That's why you have experts like Lisa or my team who actually we can come in from the outside and support the business to actually to, to create strategies that are sustainable in the long term. Um, 
so yeah, I think those are two really, well, three really important things. So getting buy-in of stakeholders and getting buy-in of the employee base, um, but also just making sure that there's support in place for any individuals that are going to be doing the role um, and finances obviously put behind them as well. Brilliant. Loads of top tips there. Lisa, I'm going to turn to you now and just see if you've got anything to add in, in that, but both generally, but in terms of when you're going into businesses, what kind of structures are you able to put in place or have you seen work particularly well? I'm thinking mentoring or any other specifics that um, will, will help empower those people that are in those roles. And you've touched on some things there, Bolly, which I'm, I'm sure Lisa will agree with, but maybe you've got some more insights. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree with those. And, you know, definitely the point about you know, you can't just get one person and call them a DEI uh, specialist and then that's your job done and your box ticked and, you know, then the organisation's primed for great diversity and inclusion. That's probably the biggest mistake that I see. I think in terms of what the organisation needs to do, I think it's very different for every organisation that I work with. Um, so some are really ahead in some areas, um, you know, and don't need to do that much work in those areas, but might need to focus on... Um, you know, for instance, classism. So the things that I would recommend is always hearing that voice, as Bolu said, you know, speak to people, hear what's going on, have the conversations, be transparent. Um, and actually, whatever you're doing, try and back it up with some intelligence. So don't just sit in a room and think, I know how to do this. You know, I'm going to follow some textbook example of what a DI strategy looks like and tick those boxes that that's what doesn't work you need to be really you know contingent on what where where the organization is you know in geographically culturally in their journey you know really back everything that you're doing up with what the people in the organization are saying what they need and any data that you can garner through um, you know, surveys through uh, different other uh, forums intelligence um, and try and provide a solution that prioritises those things that you need to the most. Um, generally, there's always an education programme involved, and that doesn't look like one training session on diversity and inclusion. Uh, that happens once a year for about three hours. I mean, the usual request is, oh, could you just do a quick webinar where we can get the whole 600 people of the company um, all trained on DEI in 90 minutes? You know, that's that's not the solution, really. Um, it needs to be really embedded. It needs to be cultural. It needs to be ongoing. Um, you know, DEI is a massive, massive area as well. It's not just, you know, DEI is not a thing really on its own. It's a culmination of, you know, loads and loads of different areas and research. So you, you could probably train every month for a year and still not have covered half of it. And I suppose um, a big part of that is empowering the well-being groups. So I often hear of clients that they've got you know, representation groups for the various different protected characteristics. And some of those seem to be really run very well. And they've got a real voice that can feed in then to the senior leadership. And in some cases, it might be the opposite, that their groups, more discussion groups at colleague level. And it makes me wonder what happens with that. Is that more of a supportive function? And that probably has a value in itself, doesn't it? But how you can use those groups actually to make some real impact um, in terms of using that voice to then progress the strategies i'm sure you've come across that as well before yeah in terms of the groups i think again it's it's what are they for so if they're safe spaces to support people then that looks very different to a group that's got the aim to make a real impact on say growing talent for the business and diversifying the senior leadership team 
So uh, the criticism that sometimes comes from forums is that they can become echo chambers. Um, and that's generally if all the people that are within that forum have the same issues and are probably at similar levels. Uh, what you really need to look at is who's in the room. You know, actually, they should really include somebody from senior leadership. So not necessarily a group that then goes to report up to. But actually, why can't somebody from senior leadership be involved in that group? One of the best ones I ever ran was a, a middle and aspiring leaders team that was open to everybody. Um, there was like a social learning group that met once a month and it, it wasn't a specific, you know, targeted towards a certain group of people that were underrepresented. It was open for everybody, but it had that impact because of the way it was managed uh, in, in actually developing and growing really good, diverse talent. Because you tend to get that pyramid as well, don't you, where there's lots of diversity in the bottom layer. But as you go up, it just gets less and less and less diverse to the leadership team that probably all look the same. So yeah, again, yeah, just a bit of thought needs to go into them. Okay, thank you. Bolly, before I move on, I don't know if you've got anything just to add to that or not. Um, no, just completely agree with Lisa's point um, in terms of it being echo chambers. And when these groups are set up, it just paramises to set around them. Sometimes we do find, I had a, a, a client meeting um, a couple of weeks ago where they had their CEO sit on one of the meetings, but they found that they weren't as productive because people weren't speaking. Um, so we went in and like, you know, we we sort of did a confidential chat with these people. And actually we found that because of the company culture, um, people were too scared to speak up because they were worried about what the ramifications would be. So actually with the CEO in the room, they weren't speaking. So actually getting the levels right of the people that come into the room is really important as well. Um, if it's, if they're too senior, it might be that actually people don't speak because they're worried about oh, if I speak, will I lose my job? Would I do this? But also I think when these people are in the room to ensure that this is senior leadership team I'm talking about now, to ensure that they communicate with the people that it is a safe space. Um, you know, body language states a lot of things. Like I can tell you it's a safe space, but if every time you bring up a point that I don't agree with, I get really confrontational or, you know, I sit up and that can be really scary as well. So I think, yes, of course, 100%, like it's really important to have senior leadership team in those rooms, um, but also those individuals that are going to be joining need to be trained on how to ensure that they're able to um, lead effective communication um, but also actively listening and just taking feedback well as well. So what that's showing is again it's not just a matter of right we've got some CLT representation tick <laughs> it's it's about the, getting the feeling right so that people are properly invested which is exactly what you were saying earlier wasn't it in terms of not just doing the tick box exercise of saying aspirationally this is what we'd like so this is the structures now we're all set and good to go you've got to make that work in terms of getting the feeling right and showing that actually the interest yeah. is there so I just wanted to spend a bit of time now just talking about particular protected groups Lisa you've mentioned neurodiversity and classism Obviously, they're not protected characteristics in law, but very much are groups that need um, some investment. And then there's older workers as well, which obviously does have a protected characteristic in, in, in line with it. But there's a load of good work being done there to support and bring older workers into um, the working environment in an inclusive way. Um, and there's loads of strategy around that. But I just wondered if either of you have got some insights that you'd like to share in terms of what what employers can do to particularly focus on some of those groups if they recognise they're underrepresented and want to do more to get better representation. Perhaps taking neurodiversity as an example, just because Lisa mentioned it, I'm going to turn to Lisa on that one. Thanks, Jenny. I mean, it's it, it's a similar answer to before, really, that you've got to have the culture where people feel open enough to talk about their wants and needs. So neurodiversity, there's no one size fits all solution. You know, everybody that's neurodiverse, everybody that's disabled is disabled in a different way. Um, you know, so it, it's really important to um, give 
managers and leaders the confidence to be able to have those conversations. Uh, I was working with an organisation who um, had a neurodiversity awareness course and we were talking about all the things that they maybe could do. And one of the things they reflected on was their uniform, for instance. So for, for neurodiverse people that have sensory issues, you know, a uniform can be a, a real barrier. I mean, my son wouldn't wear it, you know, wouldn't wear a stiff uniform. He's only wore joggers his entire life, I think, because of the feel of the fabric. So there's all kinds of tiny things like that. But the only way you're going to hear those is um, by having a culture where you have those open conversations. Um, so that, that would be my top takeaway is, you know, whatever the group of people, just engage them somehow, hear their voices. And the programme um, for the B&Q ran on um, bringing older workers into their uh, retail stores was amazing. If, if you're looking for some further reading in that area, it was amazing how they brought the older workers in, actually. And it made a huge, uh, huge impact to their turnover and their service. So when you can harness the power of bringing these underrepresented groups in, it can make a real difference. It's worth the adjustments and it's worth, you know, the cultural change that needs to take place to be able to do that. And I think I think there must be a lot of education is important there as well to remove any stigma or stereotypes, because, you know, I've heard, well, older workers more likely to be off sick, for example. And I think the statistics show that's actually not the case at all. And equally, you know, stereotypes might exist about what neurodiverse employees can or can't do. And that, like you say, it's no one size fits all. And, every, and this is what we're talking about. Everybody's got a gift and something to add, haven't they? And is finding how you can enable people to have that platform to thrive um, and losing those prejudices or stereotypes and um, breaking down taboos in, in terms of other areas as well. So absolutely, the, the education piece, I think, is really critical. You know, so actually the equal opportunities policies of the 90s, whilst they were trying to do something really good, they did leave this kind of legacy of, oh, everybody must be treated the same. And I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers that we now try to overcome as diversity and inclusion experts, because actually you need to treat everybody differently depending on their needs. Um, you know, and language for neurodiversity is a huge one. You know, oh, everyone's a bit on the spectrum. You know, there's these these kind of stereotypes. And once you break them down and, and there's a bit more education about it, you realise that that's, you know, it's not the language that you'd want to be speaking if you want to be inclusive for neurodiversity within your workforce. Thank you. Bolly, do you have anything to um, chip in on that from under, underrepresented groups? Um, I mean, whilst we're on the topic of neurodiversity, there is a um, an organisation that we've been working with quite closely. They're called Ambitious About Autism um, and they provide free training um, to employers on how to um, harness um, the skills of your, your, your employees who are neurodiverse, but also how to ensure that the workplace is um, conducive for them. Like Lisa said, I think education is so critical in these things. You can go out and want to hire individuals who are neurodiverse, but if your workspace, the lights are really bright or you have loud music and all these different things, like it, it, it wouldn't work really well. So I think just educating yourself on the things that needed to be done first internally, um, but also ensuring that the managers who are going to be looking after these people, the team that's going to be working with these people are very much aware of, um, you know, what how they can support and just things to be cautious of. So when these individuals join, they they feel like, you know, again, back to psychological safety, they feel like it is a safe space for them to be. Okay, brilliant. And then I'd just like to hone in on women a bit, really, because over the last few years, we've seen increases in the number of women who are working, and that's certainly continuing. And I've been doing an awful lot of work in relation to menopause, which, again, isn't a protected characteristic, albeit the government's looking into what, if any, additional legal protection 
is needed and I'm not I'm not suggesting we enter into that whole whole discussion that's a podcast in itself but what it does show is that women are still needing support to thrive within the workplace um, whether that's through harassment opportunities you've mentioned the flexible working and the things that they need to 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 help them to thrive I'd just be interested in your perceptions from a recruitment perspective Bolu in terms of what what are the insights that you've got about what matters most to women? And I'm particularly thinking of organisations where they've got underrepresentation of perhaps senior leaders who are women and are specifically wanting to address that. And that that's something that we can perhaps come on to because that's where there's a challenge, isn't it? Because you you need to, you recognise your underrepresentation. You want to do more. We've talked about what you can do in practical terms. But how do you then go targeting some of those underrepresented groups to come along using women as an example? That's such a good question. Just taking it back to what you said around targeting individuals from underrepresented groups, if a company um, recognise something. First thing I always recommend clients to do is look internally first, because I'll give you a, a very quick example. So we did a project with a very, very big client um, last year and very much like you said, they had identified that they were very underrepresented when it came to women. Um, and they had put their job ads on like targeted websites for women. Um, they had done like LinkedIn campaigns and all these things, but they just still weren't getting applications from women. Um, so it was our job to go out and find out why. Um, so the first thing that we did was we did a brand perception piece with them. So if I was a woman wanting to join your organization from the look of your website, from the languages on there, from the people that I see, what does it tell me about the company culture and how would that, what would that mean for me as a woman joining your company? So that's the first thing we had to do. Then secondly, we had conversations with, um, so we did some sort of market mapping to identify um, women that were in that area that would have been suitable for the job but hadn't applied for the jobs. Um, so we had conversations with 60 plus women finding out, have you heard about this company before? If you have, have you applied for a job with them before? If you haven't, why not? And off the back of that conversation, we realized that there were so many women that were so right for the job role and they had seen the job advert, but chose not to apply. And we asked them to give us feedback confidentially. And we had things in there like on the company website, there was nothing about flexible working. In terms of looking at the senior leadership team, so the pictures that were on the website, every single one was a white man, no women at all. There was nothing in their policies about um, maternity, paternity, parental policy, so the sort of leave they would give. Um, there was nothing that spoke about employee, employee support, so childcare, family insurance. And um, there was nothing that spoke, or actually, in fact, they had specifically said on the job ad that they don't allow part-time working and flexible working but within a limited time frame so when you look at all those things um you know if, if you think about how the pandemic has um affected a lot of families but spe specifically women now um you know if you're a woman with with a child for example um you need flexible work you need to be able to take your kids to, to school in the morning and maybe log on a little bit later and work longer you know depend on what what your what what your child care or your family situation is there needs to be some sort of flexibility around it we're finding in our company as well now we're finding that a lot more parents are working part-time as well um all compressed hours so they're working the same 35 to 40 hours that we need them to work but maybe in four days as opposed to five days so they have a, a, a day assigned to you know being with their family if they're taking after looking after their kids so anyways we took all this information and we took it back to the client and said look they're women who can work for you um, and they're women that would do fantastically well if they have to join the organization. But looking at your company culture, it doesn't encourage women to apply. So these are the things. So based on what we found out, these are the recommendations that we will give to you to change. 
And of course, like we know change doesn't happen overnight. And there are a lot of things that are, you know, legally they need to go back and, you know, things does take time. But I think actually having that insight from the market, the people that they were trying to target to see how they perceive their brand was a real eye opener for them. For them, there were little things like, oh, you know, when they join, we can tell them. But actually, if they don't know from the start, they're not going to apply in the first place. So they're not going to join. <laughs> so I think for us, it was just us reminding clients that you need to be vocal about the things that you do well and the things that you do. So when these individuals see it, you come to mind as an employer of choice, you know. I think if we talk about great working cultures, there's certain companies that come straight to mind for a lot of us. We need to think, what are the things that those companies do that whenever we think about good working cultures, they come to mind? We hear from the people that work from them. Um, you know, they're constantly talking about how flexible the perks that we put in place. Or, you know, I don't know, they they got sick, they had a, some sort of illness and how the company supported them. Um, or you have the company themselves, they make themselves very, very present in, you know, with issues like this. So they always do like webinars, podcasts, posts. Um, you know, these companies are very vocal about the things that they're doing, but also they're showing like the employees are talking about the things that they're doing. So I think it very much is that for a lot of a lot of our clients, they want to attract people from certain groups but the company culture isn't conducive for these individuals to join. Um, so actually, the first thing I'll do is instead of just going and targeting these individuals, look internally. What can we do differently? What the people, the, the people from those groups that currently work within our company, what do they think about working with us? Um, are they happy working here? Do they feel like we we make them feel like they, they you know, they're just not a number and they they're heard and they're listened to? And then you can take your learnings from that to ensure that when you go out to market, you're speaking about the things that are going well and the things that um, you are going to be doing differently. Okay, great. And I'll just come back to that targeting aspect, but I just wanted to ask you, Lisa, a question. I know you do a lot of work in terms of um, the learning um, development and, and building that, that, that more inclusive culture. Just taking that then to um, certain protected groups, um, again using women as an example what do you see are the reasons why companies might lose employees are they not investing in the right training the right development opportunities are they not spotting where you know they might have done all this really well to attract and get people bought in they've done some great job on their employer brand but what then makes it not work in terms of enabling those protected groups to thrive throughout the course of their employment? So one of the main things I see when I'm helping organisations with diversity and inclusion is um, people taking a performative approach to it. So in terms of, you know, actually we'll do the employer brand piece, we'll put the lovely statements, you know, we'll use um, images on the website that attract people. But once people are through the door, if they get a sense that, that isn't genuinely what's happening, you know, that isn't actually what they experience on a day to day. So that, you know, the, the language, what's managed, what's not managed, the norms, you know, who has the power, who gets to go to the parties, you know, all of those things have to align with what's put out, first of all. So I think that can be um, a, a massive risk, I think, when companies invest in the shiny things that look really good but don't do the work behind the closed doors. That actually um, means that is people's reality. Um, I think in terms of women leaving the workplace, there's, there's a really great Forbes article I was looking at actually, which broke it down into the culture. Um, so whether they can thrive or not. And I would say my fellow HR director friends, I know 
at least two or three of them that have actually experienced that and still experience that on a daily basis. So one of them works in aerospace. She was promoted to a role. She was the only person in that um, level that didn't get a company car. Everyone else was a man. You know, there's, there's things like that happen on a daily basis. Another fantastic HR director I know, it was in an academy trust. Her CEO left, another CEO came in that was brought back from retirement, an older gentleman. He instantly got rid of the three uh, female members of the senior leadership team, you know, and almost had a collective grievance on his hand. That was literally two months ago. So this stuff does happen. I think that's one of the main reasons is that women, ambitious women want to thrive and they know very quickly when they're not going to. So, you know, they make that decision. There's things about, I think, going back to that education piece as well, um, microaggressions. So if you're the only female on the leadership team, are you expected to get the coffees and take the notes? You know, it's a stereotype, but actually I've been in that position where I'm expected to take the notes. You know, and, and as a woman, I think you get to a certain age and you think, you know, <laughs> there's an option here, isn't there? Now that I'm self-employed and I've got my own business, you know, I work with many, many other women that do the same thing as me. And almost all of them will say that they left because a lack of flexibility, you know, they were being stifled by that role and weren't able to progress, develop and thrive as they wanted to. You know, and actually they realise that there's a way to do that where they're in charge of their own, you know, they're not held back by other people's um, preconceptions. I think it's a really important point. Brilliant. There's some really good content coming through there in terms of insights and I'm sure everybody listening has got some really good takeaways coming from that. I just wanted to pick up on one point in relation to a legal point really because we're asked this time and time again and you touched on it Lisa in terms of you were saying about the policies of, of old you know 15-20 years ago or whatever which sort of made you perhaps think you need to treat everybody the same and consistently and I think I think in large part that's because the legal framework is about treating people equally and obviously a lot of what we talk about now is not necessarily about equality but the equity and the inclusion side of things so it's two different things isn't it but when we're looking at targeting the underrepresented groups there's positive action that can be taken and Bolly you've mentioned about some of that and 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 I think it's great what you were saying because it shows that just doing these positive actions that is permitted in law within the constraints of the law isn't isn't necessarily going to, going to be necessary because there's other things that can be done. And I thought it's just worth me having a quick mention of that positive action because the, the legal framework is that you can't positively discriminate underrepresented groups. You can't pay them more just to attract them. Um, you can't you can't give them better training just to attract you know just just to give the opportunity. But you can take some positive action where you can clearly demonstrate perhaps with data that there is underrepresentation. So you've mentioned data as well, Lisa, and it obviously does have its place to show why perhaps you need to be taking some positive steps to address some measures. So there is this defence in law about taking some positive action in relation to those with the protected characteristics, but I just wanted to throw it out there as a word of caution that it is very limited in its approach. I mean, a good example is if you've you're underrepresented by women, for example, on the senior board and you're appointing for that and you've got a man and a woman, they're both equally capable. They're both you know, and it's a tie break effectively. In those situations, you may be able to choose the woman over the man, but it, it all comes down to your evidence, doesn't it? And how you've scored that interview as well, because unless it is genuinely a tie break, you, you can't make that difference in treatment. So uh, we have got a, a note on that, which I'm happy to share out for free if anybody's interested. It just maps out exactly what that particular 
uh, route is because I do think it's something that seems to trip up people and I don't know if you've come across that Bolly in terms of um, misunderstandings of how how you can use that but Bolly's nodding. <laughs> so, yeah so. we definitely get it all the time we always we always have our clients ask us what's the difference between positive action and positive discrimination um, I think many people have intentions to do well um, but depending on how you go about it some things are legal and some some things aren't and just for quick definition for like people you know for, for, for some who are going to be listening um, positive action is when you put things in place to ensure that an individual from an under, underrepresented group um, is able to perform at a similar level or the same level as somebody else so positive action could be doing things like um you know like we said for if you know that there's a parent within your team giving them flexible work here because because of you know everything else around it um or if you have an individual who has a disability you're giving them different working stations because of their disability that's positive action so you're just putting things in place to ensure that they're able to perform at the same level as everybody else positive discrimination is when you when you favour somebody or when you do something just simply because of their underrepresented characteristics. So, for example, like you were saying, Jenny, if there's two candidates at the recruitment stage and um, the white man, for example, has performed so much better, but because you're underrepresented for Asians, for example, you give the Asian the job, that's positive discrimination. It's a very different thing, like you were saying, Jenny, if they're both, they both scored the same um, and you, you know, you're, you're making a decision based on something else and that's fair, but you can't give somebody the job if they're not the most qualified for the job because they are from an underrepresented group. That would be classed as positive discrimination. And actually what we're finding is, especially in the US, there's been a lot more um, lawsuits around that where people are suing because they feel like they have been possibly discriminated against, you know, where sometimes, you know, they're, they're up against an ethnic minority and the ethnic minority has been given the job because companies are trying to drive up their, their stats. So I think that's something that people need to be very, very aware of. Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be um, looked at very, very carefully. The kind of things we see is um, obviously on the recruitment side, targeting advertising can be appropriate. It might be that you've got clear data that there's underrepresentation, like for women, for example, and you put in place a mentoring scheme specifically for targeted groups. That might be OK, but none of this, like you've, like you've said, Bolu, is, is OK if actually there isn't the evidence that there is that underrepresentation and it's just a, a, an aspirational wish so that, that, that you increase that representation of particular protected characteristics. So like I say, if it's worth just fully understanding how that works in practice and what you're permitted to do so you're not in the situation like you've just alluded to where you're getting um, some litigation arising from it. So if you interested in that note then please do drop me an email at jenny.arrowsmith at com, and I'll send you a copy um, for free. I just um, wanted then to draw, draw to a close. We could talk for ages because it's such a huge and interesting topic but if there was one key message or one key point you'd like the listeners to take away from today's podcast what would that be? Bolly welcome to you first and then Lisa I'll give you a, 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 an extra minute's time to think about your answer. <laughs> <laughs> of course um, I think for me the most important thing to, to, to get across is DNI is not just important for your underrepresented colleagues it is important for everybody. It's important for your stakeholders it's important for you know productivity and staff retention. It's important for the innovation in the business and also the legal ramifications of it. So when you're considering when you're considering whether or not as a business you want to take DNI DNI seriously, um, there are so many things to consider under that. You know the legal ramifications, the business case, which is you know how much money you make from it, and the moral case as well. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, I think we could talk for hours, couldn't we? I've really really enjoyed recording this today. Um, yeah, I think I think one key takeaway for me would be get your ducks in a row. Don't just focus on the things that you think people can see and just don't do the work in the other areas. So 
I work a lot on models of EVP, employee value proposition, um, and those touch a lot of the key areas I would suggest looking at if you're going to embed DNI properly. Um, so you're paying your benefits, um, you know, your equal pay, your flexible benefits. Does it suit multi-generational working? Your employer brand, who sees what? Where do they see it? Does it match what happens in reality? You know, and then your learning and development pathways, who can thrive? You know, who's going to get to break that ceiling and get into the leadership team? Back up everything that you're doing with data and intelligence. Don't ever just sit in a room and think, you know, you can develop this on your own or one person can. And if any decisions have been made in this, make sure that the people that are going to be affected by those decisions are in the room. You know, particularly in terms of DNI, listen to the people that you know are included in that. And it's an ongoing systemic review. It's not something that you tick a box and it's done. This will change in six months, eighteen months, three years. It's going to look very different than it does today. So you know, it's an embedded cultural thread that needs to have constant monitoring. I would suggest. Brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much, both of you, for your contributions today. So that's it. So thank you for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please join us for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks both of you. I enjoyed that.